invite you to come back and be with us. We are very grateful for your presence this morning. As always, we want you to feel at home, and we would love to have you come and be with us on a regular basis. If you are looking for a church home, we would want you to consider here. We'd love to have you come and be a part of our church family. We're going to be looking today at some more questions. We've been looking at some basic fundamental questions that every Christian ought to be able to answer. Sometimes, however, we are not loaded with an arsenal of Scripture, and so as a result of that, people ask us questions, and we don't have an answer. What we want to do is try to be able to give people a biblical answer for a biblical question. And today, we're going to be looking together at how grace, faith, law, and obedience harmonize. And there are a lot of folks in the world today, quite frankly, that misunderstand how these principles operate and work in unison with one another. And so we're going to be asking some questions. I would invite you, I would encourage you to get a copy of the questions that are in the foyer today. If you do not have a copy, if we're out, we'll certainly be happy to provide you with a copy of this lesson. And we began this lesson three or four weeks ago. And the reason being, as the Hebrew writer said, there were some people in the first century that should have reached a period of spiritual growth in their lives when they could have taught other people the gospel. And the writer said, you need somebody to sit down with you and reteach you the fundamentals of the faith, the first, princip the first principles of the oracles of God. So we're going to be talking about this subject matter together today. And I want you to certainly be looking at what the Bible has to say as we explore these great Christians. I want to encourage you as well. Take these questions, go home. And go back over these questions and restudy because sometimes we fail to study at home and not just at worship and Bible study. You'll never, know the, you'll never know God's Word fully and completely if you don't spend time studying outside corporate Bible study and worship. So let's begin by looking at our first question today. The questions that we're asking are simplistic, profound, but nonetheless simple. And there are questions that all of us have, and you think about the people in the world today that have questions about God's grace and the faith that we're to have in God, and what about obeying God, and what about His law for us? You know, sometimes I hear people say, we're saved by grace and grace alone. Others will say, well, we're saved by faith alone. So the question is, what does the Bible say? So let's begin by first of all looking at the question that is on the handout today. The very first question that we want to ask, how important is the grace of God in our salvation? I think that all of us would agree that without God's grace, there would be no salvation. The passage that was read a moment ago, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation. Listen to what Paul said, to every man, without the grace of God, we would be lost, wouldn't we? God, in His, well, in His own unique way, was willing to shower the human family with grace. Now, the word grace means the unmerited favor of God. A definition that I like that I've used for many years, a definition shared with me, by a professor that I had many years ago in college. The professor said, 
Grace entails somebody doing for you what you can't do for yourself. I really believe that my professor hit it on the head. Because if you stop and think about God's grace, God intervened and really did for us what we as human beings could not do for ourselves. And that is, we couldn't save ourselves. And so God loved us enough to save us. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul would say, by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works. He said, lest any man boast or glory. And so we understand the magnitude of God's grace. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, when Peter, or rather when the apostle Paul wrote to his own son in the faith, Paul recounted his former life as a Jew. And he was very grateful to God because he said that the things that he had done in his past, he said, I did them ignorantly in unbelief. And if you read Acts chapter 23, verse 1, you'll hear the apostle Paul saying that he had lived in all good conscience. And yet Paul, as you well know, known as Saul of Tarsus, had been a great persecutor of the church. And Paul said to Timothy in the long ago that he had been a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man. But he said, the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. In Romans chapter 5, verse 20, Paul would say, where sin abounded, grace did abound much more. So, without God's grace, we would have no hope. But then there's a second question we want to ask and seek to the best of our ability to answer. And that is, what motivated God to save us? Have you ever had somebody ask you, what was the catalyst? What was the driving force behind God showering His grace on us as members of the human family? I think Paul tells us plainly. In Ephesians chapter 2 at verse 4, Paul said, but God who is rich in mercy, listen to him, for the great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sin, made us alive together with Christ, and then he said, by grace are you saved. Now, we talk about the grace of God and how grateful we are for his unmerited favor toward us. But why would God why would God in heaven shower upon us, fallible members of the human family, His divine grace? Because of His love. We as members of the human family, we are the crown of God's creation. And because of the immensity of His love, God showered His grace upon us. You know, Jesus said, for God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The Bible says in Romans chapter 5, when we were yet without strength, Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 8, but God commendeth his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so the profound love of of an almighty God, 
In 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, here's what the Bible says about God. And we talk about his character and his nature. And the Bible says that God is love. God is love. And because of that love, he was willing to send his son to die in our stead. John writes in 1 John chapter 4, he said, here in his love, not that we loved him, but that he first loved us. We love him because he first loved us. God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. In 1 John 4, 14, John said, we have seen and testify that the father has sent the son, listen to him, to be the savior of the world. Why did God do that? Because he loves us. And listen, there will never be a time in your life when God doesn't love you. God has always loved you. He will always love you. Now, he may not necessarily love what you do, but God loves you nonetheless. And if you want proof of that, go back again and look at Romans chapter 5, verse 6, where Paul said, when we were yet without strength, in due season Christ died for the ungodly. God loved us despite our sin. And so because of his profound love for us, we are the recipients of his marvelous, matchless grace. Nothing like it. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul said that in the ages to come that you, might, that you might enjoy the exceeding riches of his grace and kindness. You think about how God, how God has demonstrated his love for us. So we talk about his goodness, his grace, his mercy, his love. And again, all of these factors, principles, work in unison with one another. <clears throat> There's a third question we want to ask in our study. Is faith essential? Do we have to have faith? How important is faith when it comes to our salvation? Well, you remember in Hebrews chapter 11, the writer there talks about the importance of faith. Matter of fact, we have a catalog of individuals who are identified as people of faith, aren't they? Beginning with Abel. And you can go down the list, Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and on and on. People who demonstrated faith in Almighty God. And in Hebrews chapter 11 at verse 6, the writer said, without faith, it is impossible to be well-pleasing to him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them which diligently seek, seek him. How does faith come? The Bible says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, Romans 10, 17. And then the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, that we're supposed to walk by faith and not by sight. So let me ask you again, how imperative is faith? Well, the Hebrew writer said that we cannot be pleasing to God without faith. You remember Jesus in John chapter 8? Jesus had many discussions with the Jews, the religious leaders of his day. If anyone should have demonstrated faith in the Messiah, the anointed one, should have been the Jewish people. Because Paul points out in Romans chapter 3, verse 2, that into their hands had been entrusted the oracles of God. 
They had been the recipients of the law of God, hadn't they? And the law and the prophets had foretold of the coming of the Messiah. And there were certain earmarks of the Messiah that should have been recognizable by the people. So when Jesus came and began speaking the word of God and then performing the miraculous, that should have been a telltale to the Jews of his day, this is the Messiah. And so to the unbelieving Jews of his day, Jesus said, except you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Now in the original, the text reads, except you believe that I am. The I am is the self-existent one, underscoring the deity of Christ. Jesus was not, is not a created being. The Bible says in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. John 1, 1 and 2. He was the agent by which the world was made, verse 3. And John said in verse 14, the Word, that eternal Logos, became flesh. And he said, we beheld his glory. Glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So think about that for a minute. Here is Jesus engaging in a ministry that lasted about three, three and a half years. He is teaching the people as Matthew would say, as one who had authority and not as one of the scribes. And John said the very works that he does bear witness of him that the Father has sent him. So they had every reason, they had ample reason to believe that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God, as Peter said in Matthew chapter 16, verse 16. We have to come to that same conclusion, don't we? Because Jesus said that if we fail to believe in him, then where he is, we cannot come. So faith is imperative. We can't be saved without faith, can we? Here's the fourth question we want to ask. Does God's grace preclude law? Sometimes people have difficulty understanding how God's grace and God's law could work together. Matter of fact, they have difficulty harmonizing grace, faith, law, and obedience. That's why we're talking about it. So what about God's grace? Does God's grace preclude or nullify law? Some people would say yes. Well, the passage we read a moment ago, Titus chapter 2. In verse 11, Paul said, The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to every man. Then listen to what he says in verse 12. Teaching us, instructing us, that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age or present world. What Paul is saying is that God's grace liberates us. But God's grace also regulates us in the sense that there's divine teaching accompanying that. As a matter of fact, I would say this. Whenever you read about the grace of God in Scripture, you will find it is always accompanied by divine teaching. Always. And what I'm saying is this. 
when God manifests his grace on people, he always instructs people on how to become the recipients of that grace. It's not faith only, it's not grace only. So what about law? Are we under law today? Is there a law that regulates those of us who live here on planet earth? Well, Jesus said, all authority, all power has been given unto me in heaven and on earth, Matthew 28, 18. And God said when Jesus was transfigured on the mountaintop, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, hear him, Matthew 17, 5. So Jesus has all authority. That authority has been given unto him by the Father. We are to hear what he says. So what about law? In Galatians chapter 6, verse 2, Paul said that we are under the law of Christ. In James 1.25, he calls it the perfect law of liberty. It is a law that when followed, liberates us from sin, doesn't it? In James 2, verse 12, James said, so speak, and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. So God's law is evident. If you think about God's law, are we not amenable to the words of Christ? Will he not hold us accountable for what the Bible teaches? Do you remember Jesus in John chapter 12, verse 48, he said, He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my word hath one that judges him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. We're going to be judged by the law of Christ. In Revelation chapter 20, when John said he saw the dead sitting, standing before God, he said, the small and the great, the books were opened. The books he's talking about, I believe, are the scriptures. Those who lived under the period of the patriarchs, they're going to be judged according to that law. Those who lived under the Mosaic dispensation will be judged by the law of Moses. We will be judged by the law of Christ. And the Father has given the Son authority to execute judgment. John 5, verse 27. So we're going to be held amenable to what the Lord says. Question number five. Must we obey God to be saved? Think about that question for a minute. Are we obligated to obey God? Do you remember when Jesus began his ministry? In Matthew chapters 5 through 7, we have what is typically called the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus stresses fundamental truths that are to be incorporated into the lives of his disciples. And so in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, listen to what Jesus said. Not everyone who saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but whom, Lord? Jesus said, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Those who put into practice the teaching of Jesus have the promise of entering the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus talked about the wise and foolish builders. He said the wise builder heard the word of God and put it into action. 
The foolish builder, however, heard the word of God and failed to put it into action. All he's saying there is, if you want to demonstrate wisdom in your life, you'll listen to what I say. And not only will you listen, but <clears throat> excuse me, you will put it into practice. And so to be obedient, in Revelation chapter 22, verse 14, John closes out Revelation. And John said, blessed are those who do his commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life and enter through the gates into the city. So what are you saying? Are you saying that I have to obey God, that I have to be willing to be submissive to his commands to go to heaven? That's exactly right. Not what I'm saying. It's what the Lord said. I'm just telling you what the Lord said. So now, our final question. How do you harmonize grace, faith, law, and obedience? Do they work in unison? I think the Bible teaches that they do. Let me just give you a couple of examples from the scriptures. Example number one, I would cite Genesis chapter 6. You remember God said that every imagination of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. And so as a result of that, God said, I'm going to destroy man whom I've created, both man and beast. In Genesis chapter 6, verse 8, the Bible says, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Okay? God's going to destroy the world. And God said, Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me. I'm going to destroy the world, and here's what I want you to do. I want you to build an ark of gopher wood. And God gave him the dimensions of that ark. So, in that context, you have God's grace, don't you? And then God's saying, Noah... Here's what I want you to do. I want you to build an ark of gopher wood. Could Noah have said to God, you know, I remember the last time you flooded the world. And when you say you're going to do something, you mean it. He didn't have anything to draw upon from the past, did he? The Bible says, by faith, Noah being warned of God of things, listen to him, of things not seen as yet moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his house by which he became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. So God said, no, I'm going I'm to destroy the world. I'm going to shower my grace upon you. As a matter of fact, Moses said, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. In order to, <clears throat> excuse me, in order to appropriate that grace, here's what I want you to do. I want you to demonstrate faith in my word. And faith is taking God at his word and putting it into practice, isn't it? So God said, I want you to build this ark. Here are the dimensions. I want you to comply with that. And in so doing, what will, what will happen? What will occur? You'll save your home. And the Bible says in Genesis 6, thus did Noah, listen to him, according to all that God commanded him. So did he. So what do you have there? You have grace. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. 
You have law or divine teaching. God said, no, here's what I want you to do. I want you to build an ark of gopher wood. You have faith because the Bible says, by faith, Noah was warned by God of things not seen as yet. And then what do you have? Obedience. The Bible says he prepared an ark for the saving of his household. Became heir of the righteousness, which is by faith. Let me give you another example. In the book of In the book of Numbers, there's an account recorded by Moses of the children of Israel murmuring and complaining. They were disenchanted with the Lord because of a lack of food and water. And they said, our soul loathes this worthless bread. So they spoke against the Lord and Moses. The Bible said, that God sent fiery serpents among the people and bit the people and many of the people of Israel died in Numbers 21. Children of Israel began to cry out to God. They prayed to God. As a matter of fact, they asked Moses to pray on their behalf that God would remove those fiery serpents. So here's what God said. Noah, I want you to build, I want you to make a serpent of brass, and put it on a pole. It shall be that whoever looks at that serpent shall live. And the Bible says Moses made that serpent of brass, put it on a pole, and when the children of Israel were bitten, They could look at that pole and live. So what do you have? You have God's grace, don't you? They were dying because of those venomous bites. They cry out to God and God said, okay, I'll save you. But here's what I want you to do. I want you to make this serpent of brass, put it on a pole. When somebody looks at that serpent of brass, what what will happen? The Bible says they will live. God's grace, God's law, God's divine instruction, here are the instructions. You've got to look at that serpent of brass and then you'll live. Did that take faith? Yes, it did. Did it require obedience? Absolutely. Now, what if somebody had been in his or her tent? And let's just say hypothetically, this individual has been bitten by a serpent. And so they bow their head and they begin praying to God. They begin praying the serpent's prayer. They say, Lord, I know that you have the ability to save me from this venomous bite. I just ask that you come into my heart and save me from this terrible serpent's bite. Would God have saved them? Could they have prayed that prayer sitting in their tent without looking at that brass serpent and lived. No, they could not. So why do people today think that they can be saved in a way other than what God legislates? What's the difference in the serpent's prayer and the sinner's prayer? I can tell you what the difference is. There is none. They're both incorrect. In Joshua chapter 6, look at Joshua 6 very quickly. Our time is gone. I want you to see one last example. In Joshua chapter 6, 
God said to Joshua in the long ago, See, I have given you the city of Jericho. I've given you that city. That's God's grace, isn't it? God said, Joshua, I'm going to give you the city. I'm going to give you the king and all of its mighty men of valor in order to appropriate the blessings that I am promising you, that I have bestowed on you, here's what you need to do. You take the children of Israel, the men of Israel, along with seven priests, and you march around the city one time each day for six days. On the seventh day, here's what I want you to do. I want you to march around the city seven times. And the priests who are bearing the trumpets of ram's horns, they are to blow their trumpets. And they are to shout. And when you do that, what will happen? God said, God said in the long ago, the city, he said, the city will fall down flat. Verse 5. Listen to him. It'll come to pass when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, that all the people shall shout with a great shout. Then the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up every man straight before him. Let me ask you this question. What do we have here? God's grace, Genesis 6, 2. I have given you the city. That's God's grace. Okay, in order to, in order to achieve the taking of this city, what are you going to have to do? You're going to have to march around the city six days, one time each day. On the seventh day, you're going to have to have faith in me. You're going to have to have obedience in what I've instructed you. That's divine law and faith. You're to march around that city seven times on the seventh day, and then the priests are to blow those trumpets rams, shout, and the city will fall. Hebrews chapter 11, did you know that the Hebrew writer references the fact that by faith the walls of Jericho fell after having been encircled? Did, did God shed his grace on those people? Yes, he did. Did they have to demonstrate faith and obedience? Yes, they did. Did he give them divine instructions on how to enjoy the blessings of his grace? Yes, he did. Now, what's the application for us? The grace of God's appeared, bringing salvation to every man. We're all saved by grace, aren't we? But not by grace alone, not by faith alone. We have to have grace to be saved. We have to have faith to be saved because Jesus said without, well, Jesus said, except you believe that I'm he, you'll die in your sins. So what about how do we appropriate this? The Bible says that grace is in Christ. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. If grace is in Christ and salvation is in Christ, 2 Timothy 2, 10, the question then, how do we appropriate that grace? We obey the gospel. Faith and obedience, and we become the recipients of God's blessings, don't we? Are we saved by grace? Yes, we are. Are we saved by faith? Yes, we are. Are we saved by obedience? Yes, we are. Are we saved by law? Yes. They all work in tandem. So what do you need to do to become a child of God? The Bible's very clear. 
God's grace has been showered upon the human family. We're all saved by grace. In order to appropriate that grace, you have to believe Jesus is the Son of God, John 8, 24. Then you must be willing to repent of all your sins on Pentecost Day when the people were pricked in their hearts and cried out unto Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Peter said, here's what you need to do. You need to repent. And then he said, you need to be baptized for the remission of your sins. Now, did they earn their salvation in complying with the will of God? Absolutely not. They did what God said to do, and as a result of that, they became recipients of his grace, mercy, kindness, and listen, his forgiveness. Same is true today. I mentioned that serpent of brass. We both know unless those people complied with the will of God in its exactness, they would have died. Unless we comply with the will of God today, we will remain spiritually dead. So if you're here today and you're not a Christian, we want to encourage you to come to Christ. Repent, be baptized so that all your sins can be washed away. Enjoy the benefits of His grace, mercy, and love. And then be faithful. The promise being the crown of life, Revelation 2.10. If you're here today and you're not faithful to his cause, you need to come home. We'd love to pray with you and for you. The Bible says God will abundantly pardon. 1 John 1, 9. Won't you come as we stand and sing?